This morning I have a question. What does Easter have to do with me? I mean, really, I've been in church every Easter Sunday for my entire life. I get dressed up. I sing the songs. I listen to the preacher talk about the resurrection of Jesus every year. I eat the Easter lunch, and then I go back to work on Monday. What does Easter have to do with me? And what we're talking about here today happened 2,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. Do you know how much things have changed since then? I mean, back then there was no printing press, no electricity. There was not even Wi-Fi. Not to mention this whole event took place on another continent. All the people at the first Easter spoke a different language than me. In fact, the English language had not even been created yet. My point is, this was a long time ago. What does that have to do with me? And you know this whole Jesus guy, he was a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi turned martyr. He said a lot of good things that people wrote down. It seems that he influenced, helped a lot of people. Apparently he did some miracles and perhaps even rose from the dead. Great. What does that have to do with me? And the world is still pretty messed up all these years later. I mean, they say Jesus changed the world, but it looks to me like things are worse than they've ever been. I got problems in my life, struggles I'm dealing with. There's all sorts of suffering and evil in the world right now. What does Easter have to do with me? Well, as you've probably guessed, I'm now going to explain what Easter has to do with you. And I'm being a little dramatic this morning because I want to stir you up a little bit. I want you to really think about that question. Maybe you're here like me today and you're here because, well, where else would you be? This is Easter. You've always been in church on Easter. It's a highlight of the year for you. You know the songs. You know the story. You know when to stand and when to sit. But when is the last time you really paused and considered the impact this has on your life? Or could it be that maybe this is more of an annual routine for you, just another holiday on the calendar? Or maybe you're here this morning because, well, you didn't exactly have a choice. Someone told you, you were coming to church today because it's Easter, and Grandma says if you want to eat Easter lunch, you better be at Easter service. Or maybe you even made yourself come to church because it's Easter, and that's what you, know, you feel like you're supposed to do today. Or regardless of why you're here, whether it's your first Easter, your eighth Easter, or your 80th Easter, I want to lay my cards on the table. This morning... I want to convince you that Easter has everything to do with you. I want to take 15 minutes, maybe a few more, not much more than that though. And I want to convince you that the resurrection of Jesus is the single most important thing that has ever happened to you. It's more important than the day you were born. And it's more important than the day you will die. In fact, it is the single most impactful event in the history of the world. And whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he walked out of a sealed tomb impacts your life every single day. How is that possible that something so long ago could mean something today? What does Easter have to do with me? 
I'm so glad you asked that one more time because I'm going to show you. (laughs) If you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of the black ones under the chair in front of you. You can pull it up on your phone. You can just follow along on the screen. This morning, we're going way back in time, not just to the first century where Jesus lived and died and rose again, but actually to 700 years before that. We're going to look at the words of a prophet named Isaiah. This is the fourth and final message of our series on the suffering servant, this song, this poem written to a group of people who lived in a nation at the time called Israel. And let me tell you, these guys were in a really tough spot. They had turned away from God. And now they were being judged. They were about to be attacked and taken over by another nation. So as the people were understandably pretty terrified, Isaiah received this word from God of hope. He told them that despite all the things that happened, all the things we've messed up, all the things that are going to happen that are bad, God is going to send someone who's going to come and he's going to save us. And this person he calls the servant of the Lord. Isaiah told him that the servant will come and rescue the people, and he's going to be like this great and mighty king. But he's going to do this in a very strange way. He's actually going to save people by dying for them. He's actually going to take the sins of people on himself so that they can be forgiven. And we learn the most amazing part of all that Isaiah accurately described and predicted 700 years before things that would be fulfilled in the first century by a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy perfectly. He came as a man, yet he did things that only God could do. He loved people, he helped people, yet he was was rejected by them, and ultimately he was murdered on a cross and laid in a borrowed tomb. But as we said last week, the story did not end there. Isaiah's prophecy doesn't end there. There's more explanation we need to know about this mysterious servant. So let's cover the final stanza of this poem, and let's see this morning that Jesus is the champion of heaven. First, let's let's just read it all in its entirety. You can follow along with me in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, if you're new to the Bible, some of these words may sound kind of old school, kind of weird. Let's remember here that the Bible was written a long time ago. This passage in particular was written over 2,700 years ago in a different language, a different culture. It's also written in this poetic style. But, you know, I think besides all that, I think I'm going to show you this morning, it's pretty clear what Isaiah wanted us to see. Let's break this down piece by piece. Look at verse 10. Isaiah predicts again that this servant will be crushed. We saw that the past few weeks, the servant, he's going to be killed. Despite being God in human flesh and doing all this great stuff, people hated him. They're going to reject him and murder him. But here's the first strange thing we see this morning. 
Isaiah says this servant won't just be killed by people, but ultimately he will be crushed by the Lord. He tells us that the death of this suffering servant will happen according to the plan and will of God. It may look to us like some awful tragedy is happening, this innocent man being unjustly murdered. This is the exact way God drew it up. Here's why. Because Isaiah says his soul will make an offering for guilt. Now, that may not mean much to us, but to the original hearers of this message, they were very familiar with the idea of a guilt offering. In the nation of Israel, when you sinned against someone, what you would do, you were required to take an animal to the temple and sacrifice that animal as a guilt offering. And once you did that, then you and that person were reconciled, you were restored, and you were forgiven. Isaiah says here that this servant will be himself the guilt offering. And this fits with what we saw in previous weeks. Remember we learned that every person is a sinner. All of us have sinned against God. We're all guilty before him. So the servant will voluntarily offer himself as a sacrifice to take away the guilt of people, to bring them into relationship with God. And we established that's what Jesus did. Just as Isaiah prophesied, Jesus did not die because he was a sinner. He died because we're sinners. He went to the cross willingly to take our place. And on the cross, God the Father crushed him. He crushed his own son. He poured out the judgment for sin on him instead of on you. So Jesus was our perfect guilt offering. Someone had to pay the price for sin and evil in the world. And so Jesus paid it by dying in our place. But here's the second strange part of verse 10. Isaiah predicts that after the servant is crushed and dies as a guilt offering, he says he's going to see his offspring. He will prolong his days. How is that? Normally when we describe someone who's been crushed and killed, we do not speak of them as having prolonged days. You know, when I uh, first started driving, I drove an old Dodge Ram. Do you remember your first car you had? Did you wreck it? Anybody be honest? Yeah, that's why we get those old beaters to start out. And I remember one day I was driving through my neighborhood at 16 years old when a rabbit ran out in front of me. And listen, I did everything I could. I tried, I swerved left and right, but I hit him. <laughs> and I felt terrible in the moment. I never hit anything before, so I pulled over immediately. I got out and I did CPR. I did rabbit first aid, okay? No, I'm kidding. Actually, I just kept driving. But I did feel bad for a few minutes because he was gone, right? You don't just hop in front of a Dodge Ram and make it out alive. And now I suddenly realize I'm telling a story about a dead bunny on Easter. I'm so, so, if we can just edit that part out, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My point is, though, we understand that death is final, Whether animal or human, every living thing on this planet has an expiration date. And when we go, that's it. Our earthly life, our earthly days are over. But he says, hey, this wasn't the case with the servant. Something was going on with him even after he died. Isaiah continues to make that point in verse 11. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, after he experiences his horrible death, he will see and be satisfied. How could someone die, particularly in this gruesome, brutal way that Isaiah described, and then be satisfied with what happened? Here's why. He says the servant will make many to be accounted righteous. 
That word righteous simply means to be made right with God, to have a relationship with him. We know the servant was righteous himself, and he's going to make other people righteous like him. In other words, through his death, the servant will bring others to a relationship with God. How can that be? How can we have a relationship with a holy God when we're sinful people? Here's how. The end of verse 11, he says, he shall bear their iniquities. Our iniquities, that means all the things that we've done wrong in our lives. He's going to bear them for us. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket before? Raise your hand. Have you had a speeding ticket? Okay, some of you are lying. In church on Easter, okay? Some of you need to slow down. But when you get a speeding ticket, you have committed an iniquity, okay? You have committed a violation against the state of Kansas, and you must make a payment to restore your innocence. But let's imagine if I come to the courthouse on your behalf, and because I'm such a kind person who never speeds, but hits rabbits, sadly, uh, I decide to pay the cost for you of the ticket. I would be personally bearing your iniquity. And that's what Isaiah said the servant would do. That's what Jesus did. There's a cost, a payment for sin, and Jesus paid it on our behalf. So that we could be made righteous, so we could have a right relationship with God. And Jesus did that for us when he died. But he doesn't stop there. Remember, something's happening after the death of Jesus that doesn't seem possible. Isaiah continues in verse 12. He says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And this is battle, wartime language. Because of what the servant will do, God's going to give him a portion with the many. Another way to translate that is he's going to reward him as a victor, as the champion of the battle. It's similar to that saying, have you heard before? To the victor go the spoils. We understand that when you achieve victory, when you win, you get a reward. You get a trophy or a medal or a cup or something. But you know, growing up, I did not win in very many things. I somehow always ended up on the worst sports teams. And I thought it was the, the teams I played on. Then one day I realized it was just me. <laughs> like I was the common denominator all those years. So I didn't win much in sports. But in the third grade, man, I had a big moment. I won the third grade spelling bee. Hold your applause, okay? I remember we lined up in the cafeteria all the way around the room, and the teacher had the spelling book out, and she'd go person by person and give them a word, and if they missed it, they had to go sit down. And that group just kept dwindling and dwindling down until pretty soon I was the last man standing. I won on the word October because there was a calendar right behind the teacher. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm kidding. I Actually, I did get it right, and it was proudest moment of my life because I won and I got to pick out all these cool prizes man I got packs of gum and Snickers bars and all these action figures I got all the spoil my friends were so jealous because I didn't share anything with them I was the victor you see Jesus's victory was not like my third grade spelling bee he did win he did defeat sin and death he is the champion of heaven and as a result, he's been given all things by the Father. But just as Isaiah prophesied, he does not keep the spoil for himself. He does not hoard his reward like I did. No, he divides it. He shares it. So here's the big point I want us to see and remember this morning. Listen, if you hear one thing today, 
please hear this. The triumph of the resurrection is meant to be shared. What does Easter have to do with me? It has everything to do with you because Jesus rose from the grave to share his life with you. He did not come to the earth and suffer and die and rise from the dead just for his own sake, but he did it also for you. Look at the rest of verse 12. That's what it says. He, he bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. That's us. Whose sins did Jesus die for? Yours. Who is he now making intercession for in heaven? You. Jesus came to the earth to suffer in your place, to take your judgment, to take your sins away. But he didn't just come to take things away. He also came to give. He came to share what he's been given as the champion of heaven. So what exactly are the spoils of Jesus' victory? What is it exactly that he wants to share with us? Well, how much time do you have? Because it's a lot. I'll just give you a brief picture. First off, because Jesus paid the price for sin, he shares with us forgiveness. Every sin we've ever committed, ever will commit, when you trust in Jesus, he wipes it all away and you're forgiven. And you stand before God perfect and spotless as his child. Next, because Jesus defeated Satan, he shares with us victory. We may be tempted and tried, but listen, if you know Christ, Satan cannot steal your joy or your salvation. There is no sin, no struggle that God cannot redeem for his glory and your good. Because Jesus destroyed death, he shares with us eternal life. Listen, that means if you know Christ, you no longer have to fear death or wonder what's going to happen after this life. Through Jesus, you will never die. But death is now just a doorway to eternal joy and paradise. Because Jesus is now at the, in heaven at the right hand of God, he shares with us his seat. Paul wrote that we're seated with him in heavenly places. Our citizenship is secured in heaven. We don't have to worry about anything in life because our very souls are safe in him. And lastly, because Jesus is coming back, he shares with us his mission. We now have a purpose. If you know Jesus, you have a reason to live. You have a reason to do everything you do. You can glorify God through your work, through your family, through your neighborhood, through every other area of your life. Listen, all of this and so much more can be yours if you will simply trust in Jesus and follow him. He's done everything needed for you to be saved. He said, it is finished. He has won the victory and he has the spoil to share. All you need to do is come and surrender. Because the triumph of the resurrection is meant to be shared. But Easter is not just about Jesus sharing the resurrection with us. He has also called us to share the resurrection with the world, with others. Jesus did not keep his victory to himself, but he graciously shared it with us so that we could then share it with the world. See, we're given victory that we might announce that victory to the world. We're given a seat at the victor's table that we might invite others to join the feast. We're given the crown of eternal life that we might rescue others from eternal death and hell. Jesus is the champion of heaven. And his victory, the triumph of the resurrection, is meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared with you that you might experience new life in Jesus, that you might have the ability to start over, to be forgiven, to have a purpose, to have meaning, to have love. But it's also meant to be shared 
by you that you might take this message to the world who desperately needs to hear it. That's what Easter has to do with you. I want to invite you right now to bow your heads with me.